Nate Berkus is one of Chicago's preeminent decorators with a growing presence on the final on the national front through his regular appearance on the Oprah Winfrey Show. In 2005, he wrote his first book entitled Home Rules. Transform the place you live into a place you love. Now the idea behind the book is that your home should be a reflection of who you are. The point of the book is pretty simple. You should design your house and arrange your house in order to reflect your personality. And we all put up family pictures. We choose certain colors that we like. We prefer certain furniture that suits our needs and our preferences. We like our home to be a reflection of who we are, what we like and what we don't like. Friends, if that idea is desirable for our lives on earth, for our earthly homes, how much more is that aspiration true of God's house? Does God have certain ways he wants his house to be like? How do we think about God's house? Just a few years ago, our church did a pretty extensive work of renovation so that it would look pretty to us and to our visitors. I wonder how much we think about God's house needing to reflect His personality. And do we just, or do we just do it so that we like it? As if it's our house. Well, from the very beginning, when God called Moses to build a sanctuary, God had very specific instructions about how to design the tabernacle, what materials to build, to use in order to build it, and how to furnish it. We have that story described in the latter part of Exodus. God's earthly house was to reflect God's nature and the tabernacle in heaven. Later, the tabernacle was replaced by the temple. When David built a new house for God. And when we come to the New Testament, we see something very different. God's house is no longer just an edifice, but it's a people. First in Christ Jesus. The first, God's first dwelling in the New Testament is manifested through Christ. But then as after his ascension to the Father, God's, God's house on earth was made manifest through his people, the people whom God redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Yes, in the New Testament, the church is described as God's household. Now, if we earthly creatures desire to have homes that reflect who we are, how much more do we think God desires for his house, for his household, to reflect who he is? Well, it's to this end that God has given us specific instructions about how to conduct our lives together in the church so that we would reflect His character and His nature. While the entire Bible is given and written for this purpose, specifically, the book of 1 Timothy presents to us instructions about how to manage and how to conduct ourselves in God's house. Today we begin a new series of sermons on the letter of 1 Timothy. And the series of this of the title of the series will be God's House, 
God's rules. God's house, God's rules. I encourage you to open your scripture to the book of Timothy, chapter 3. We'll read very, a very short passage, verses 14 through 16. If you've been here at Park Hills for a while, you know I think this is the record of short passages we've read for the preaching of God's word. But these three verses in the book of Timothy will give us a purpose and the big idea of what Timothy is all about. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 1029. Here's the word of the Lord for us as we begin this new sermon series. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's prepare the hearing of God's word through prayer. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word which you have given to us to instruct us about how we should behave in your house. Father, I pray that this message and this series of messages will not be just a list of, of dead rules, but they would be your word to us about how you want us to act out, how you want us to live out the life of the family to which you have called us. I pray that you speak to us in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, let me ask you this morning the following two questions. Does it matter how we do church? Does it matter if we do church? An increasing number of Christians think that going and doing church, going to church and doing church, is a secondary matter to salvation because they claim that church is not essential to salvation or that we are not saved through the church. While it is true that we are not saved through the church, it is incorrect to conclude that church is not important or that it is a secondary matter or that it is a matter of preference. As we will see from the study of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul thought that participating in God's household was such a crucial part of the Christian experience that he devotes his entire book, this entire book of 1 Timothy, to the purpose of instructing us how we ought to act in God's house. So I'd like for us to spend the first part of our time this morning thinking about the purpose of 1 Timothy. The purpose of 1 Timothy is given to us most explicitly in the passage we just read, verse 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is a church of the living God, 
the pillar and foundation of truth. Knowing how to conduct oneself in God's household. This is the purpose of 1 Timothy. This is the purpose of the letter. This is what Timothy needed to hear so that he could teach it in turn to the church members so that church members would know how to conduct themselves in God's household, in the church. And friends, if the entire New Testament includes, if in the New Testament we have this book, an entire book that devotes explicitly its attention to instruct us how Christians ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, that means that participating in God's household must be pretty important. Actually, the Bible tells us that participating in God's household is not the means of salvation, but it's the result of salvation. Participating in God's household is not the means of salvation, but the result of salvation. One of the ways our salvation is described in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, is by using the picture of adoption. When we are saved, we are adopted into His family. Now, there could be many reasons why some Christians refuse to live their lives in a community with other Christians. Some people may have been burnt by ungodly relationships. And they're hurt. Other people might be burnt by the activism of church activities which left them dry emotionally and spiritually. We pray for such people. We pray that God would heal them so they could be restored into God's family and participating in God's church. Yet there's other, other reasons why self-professed Christians choose to stay away from living in community with other Christ followers. Individualism, isolationism, independence, non-commitment, or the rejection of accountability. All these and many others like them, should be taken very seriously. Such people may have a distorted view of the gospel and of the nature of salvation. Friends, God saves us personally. But He saves us into a family. Into His family. So to reject belonging to God's family may reveal a rejection of our adoption into his family. And that's why when people refuse to do church, to engage in church, and to participate in God's family, we should take that very seriously. A first implication of the, pur- of, of the purpose of 1 Timothy is that belonging to God's household, while it is not the means of salvation, it is the necessary result of salvation. How Christians behave in God's household has the potential either to affirm the truth and to display the truth in actual life or to deny the truth and to swerve away from the truth. But a second implication also needs to be made clear. Some Christians are of the opinion that it does not matter how we do church as long as we do church or as long as we just love one another. Well, while loving one another is indeed a fundamental principle in God's household, As we will see, Paul will find it important to address quite a lot of specific issues in this book. 1 Timothy is a book concerned deeply with the practicalities of church life. 
Let's look at, a, at the list of topics it will cover briefly. After the first two verses in chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy of the task he had given Timothy when he began his ministry in Ephesus, namely to guard the truth. To command certain people, look at 1 Timothy 1.3, to command certain people not to teach false doctrines. Guarding the truth was a major responsibility Paul gave Timothy in Ephesus. And now in this letter, the first thing Paul reminds Timothy is guard the truth. Actually, if we turn to the end of this letter, the last thing Paul commands Timothy is keep the truth. And throughout this letter, Paul will continue to remind Timothy of this task, this responsibility to guard the truth. Why? Because there have been some people who have shipwrecked their faith because they have rejected the truth. Then in chapter 2, Paul will address instructions about worship services. He will address the importance of public prayer and the roles of men and women in the church. Then in chapter 3, he will give specific instructions about what kind of men should govern the church, should lead the church. Um, Just a hint, it's not going to be committees. Baptist church, just a hint, it's not going to be committees. Paul will talk about who should lead the church. Certain men, we have certain qualifications. Then after these specific instructions about church leadership, Paul will give Timothy instructions about who should serve the church. Deacons. And how they should be. Then Paul will give Timothy some personal counsel in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, Paul will give instructions about which widows should qualify to receive financial assistance from the church. In other words, not all widows should be helped by the church. The church should be thinking clearly and carefully which should receive that help. After that, Timothy is instructed about how the church should treat elders. And by the way, here it's not talking about elderly people. It's talking about pastors. Then there's specific teaching about how pastors should be Discipline when they fall into sin. Church discipline for pastors. There is such a thing as well. And Timothy and Paul will teach Timothy how to address that. And then in chapter 6, Paul will address the relationship between slaves and masters. How they should relate to one another. Followed by instructions to those who want to be rich. And for those who are already rich. And then finally instructions for Timothy to pursue a godly life. And then almost as a P.S. note. Paul closes by commanding Timothy once again to guard the truth and to keep the truth. The short overview reveals to us not only the the recurring themes of guarding the truth and pursuing godliness, but also it reveals to us how much time Paul took to explain how the life of the church should be ordered. Why? Because God really cares about how we do church. He gave us very specific instructions. So having looked at at this list of commands, let's ask the big question we all like to ask when we see a list of rules. What is a question you and I like to ask when we see rules stated? I will let you take a guess. Why? Why? Why rules? Why rules in the church? Why can't we just do church and just love one another and that's enough? Why rules? 
Why these rules? Well, the answer we read, the, the, the text we read will give us the answer to this question. And we will find two reasons to the question why. First, because of what the church is. And second, because of what the mystery of godliness is. So why rules in the church? Because of what the church is and because of what the mystery of godliness is. So what is the church? In the passage we read, Paul gives us four images. I'd like for us to go through them. First of all, in, in verse 15, it says, it is the house of God. The church is the house of God. Now think for a moment about your house or about your apartment. It doesn't matter if you own it or rent it. It is a place where you live. Or think about your family. Who makes the rules in your house? If you're the parents, you do. Because it's your house and it's your family. If you're the child or the adolescent, who makes the rules in your house? Children, at youth, you would like for the answer to be you. But you know better than that. It's not you. It's your parents. Why? Why is it that they get to make the rules in the house? Because it's their house. When you grow up, you leave the house. They stay. That's why they get to make the rules. Now, I know some of you would really like to, to tweak those rules and to make your own rules and to reinterpret your rules. But even though you call your house your house and your family your family, it's not really your house. It's not really your family. It's your parents' house and your parents' family. Now, it is your family in the sense that you're members of that family. So in that sense, you are part of the family, and, you, and that family is yours. But you don't get to make the rules. Now, ch children and teenagers, can I get your attention for a moment? God has given you certain authority figures in your life who make all kinds of rules for all kinds of specific situations in your life. This book, the Bible, does not have room to make all the rules, to write down all the rules that you should have for every specific situation in your life. That's why God gave some authority figures. And those authority figures are called parents. They get to tell you specifically how to behave in all kinds of situations. And God's design was for you to have that authority in your life so you could obey them. Now, even though you may not be convinced of this, children and youth, I want to tell you, your parents love you, even when they make those rules for you. They do it out of love for you. They do it because they want the best for you. And by the way, you probably have figured out those house rules, they apply not only when you're inside the house, they apply when you're outside the house too. 
So house rules are more like family rules. That means that house rules are not about, not about rules about the house. They're rules about the family. Children and teenagers, you honor God by obeying your parents in all the house rules they make. Now, parents, I know that you're really glad that I took time to speak to your children and youth and to apply this to them this morning. But now I need your attention. Parents and grandparents. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 describe the church as God's house and us as his children. We are members of God's family, but we don't make the rules. Parents, just as we ask our children to obey the rules of the house, of our house, the rules that we make, God is asking us to obey the house rules that he makes. And just like children or teenagers in a family would often like to make their own rules or to contribute to the rules of the house or to reinterpret the rules in order to satisfy them, oftentimes the church has tried to make its own rules or to reinterpret God's rules in order to satisfy its members or in order to attract more people into the family or in order to come across more friendly to society. But God, as a loving father, he is the owner of the house. And he reminds us how we should conduct ourselves in his household. Now, in the Greek language, the meaning of the word house is also family or household. And it is these, these latter meanings that are, are primary whenever we see the phrase God's house. God's house in the New Testament does not refer to the building. God's house refers to God's household, God's family. The Christian life is a family life. And Paul uses family language to describe his relationship to Timothy. Look in 1 Timothy 1, 12, 1, chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Do you hear that familiar tone? My true son in the faith. Following Christ, dear friends, turns strangers into family members. Following Christ turns strangers into family members. So doing church is about doing family life, doing God's family life. My dear friend, let me ask you, do you ever think about those who are younger than you, whether younger in age or younger in the faith, as possibly being your children in the faith? Or do you just say, hey, I live my life. I've had my children. I just want to sit around and enjoy my retirement. Friends, the Christian life is family life. Every member of the family of the church is a member of our family, of God's family. The second picture that we see in, in the way Paul describes the church is not only in the household of God, but the second picture is the church of the living God. Now, the Greek word for, for church here is ekklesia, which means more like gathering or assembly. We most often translate this word as the church, but we must be very careful not to assume here again the physical building, but the people who assemble and who live their lives together. So God's household is comprised of those who gather, those who assemble. Now, this is a critical emphasis because there are people who think that 
church is, is either a building or that church is somehow a spiritual reality out there without a concrete, actual manifestation. They, they think of the latter as a, as a universal church. But both, are, both ideas of, of the church as simply being either a building or just some spiritual reality alone, both of these are unbiblical understandings of the term church. To belong to God's household means we belong to the gathering of His saints. In Romania, where I grew up, Christians often referred to the church by using another name. The gathering. So people would not say, how is church today? People would say, how is the gathering today? They didn't say they belong to the church. They belong to the gathering. Because that's the idea about the church. The church is not just a group of people out there who have some names on a roster, but who never do life together. The church is the gathering, the assembly of the living God. The third picture and the fourth picture that we see about the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. The pillar sustains an edifice. They carry the weight of the building. The foundation on the other side is, is that which, on which the entire edifice is built. Everything, pillars and walls and everything. What is very surprising in this text is the role of the church in maintaining truth and preserving the truth and guarding the truth and proclaiming the truth. These two images tell us that the church is not just a social club where I get to meet with other people. The church is not just a place where I get help. The church is not just a place that is supposed to make me happy. The church is the foundation and the pillar of truth. There's more at stake in the existence of the church than my own needs, than my own felt needs. The church is to cater not to my felt needs, but to cater to the truth. That is why one of the greatest tasks of the church is to guard the truth. The church is called to guard the truth in two primary ways. First of all, by making sure that its teachings uh, remain pure and faithful to God's revelation. Let me, let me pause here for a moment. The most important thing today that most people consider when they visit other churches is typically how good the music is, how nice the people are, how nice the building is, what kind of programs they have, do I like them? But Paul is saying here that the most important thing about a church is what it believes and what it teaches. So instead of looking just at, at what kind of things they have, what kind of programs they have, what kind of building they have, what kind of people they have, the first thing we should ask is, what kind of teaching they have? Do you ever consider about considering examining the statement of faith of a church? Friends, if you're visiting this morning, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're checking us out. But I would point you out, the first thing you need to examine about ourselves is what we believe. Our statement of faith. What we preach. What we teach. That is the most important thing about what a church does. Now, there are some other things for sure. 
That is the starting point. The second way in which a church guards the truth is by making sure that its life conforms to that it, what it teaches. Churches may officially claim they believe something. They may have a very good statement of faith. But by their lives, they communicate or can communicate something else. That's why in 1 Timothy, Paul will talk not only about confronting false teachers, but also about pursuing godliness. How we live as members of God's household matters. If our beliefs don't change the way we live our daily lives, such beliefs are in vain. More so, the church is called to put the truth on display by the way its members live it out. By the way their members, its members live out the truth. So what we say, what we preach and teach, makes the truth audible. But how we live together makes the truth visible. Let me repeat that again. What we say, what we preach and teach, makes the truth audible. But how we live life together makes the truth visible. So a church is called to guard the truth by being attentive to what it teaches and being attentive to how it lives out the truth. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy that if Paul was delaying from his trip, his visit, Timothy would know how to teach people how to conduct themselves in God's household. Now, we may think this letter is for ministers, and in some ways it is written to teach ministers how to do the ministry. But this letter is for the church to hear how God desires each member of the church and the whole church together to live as a part of God's family. Why? Because what the church, because of what the church is. It is God's house, or God's household. It is the assembling of, of the people who belong to the living God. It is a pillar and, found, and foundation of the truth. But the second reason why people ought to know how to conduct themselves in the church of God is not only because of what the church is. The second reason to the question why is because of the mystery of godliness. Because of the mystery of godliness. The theme of godliness will appear throughout this book. Godliness has to do with our conformity to God. It affects our inner attitudes of our minds. It affects our thoughts. It affects our outward behavior. In, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul will command Timothy to train himself to be godly. Yet here Paul, in our passage, describes the mystery of godliness. And we may expect some talk about the outward behavior. But in chapter 3, that is not what Paul will talk about. Instead, he will talk about the mystery of godliness as being not our behavior, but the mystery of godliness is Christ. Look at verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Friends, just in a few lines, we have the message of Christ summarized for us. This is the, the pinnacle of the gospel. This is the, the core of the gospel. His birth, his resurrection, his message proclaimed, his message preached and believed, and his ascension. In other words, our godliness, friends, our godliness is connected to the person of Christ. To his work and to his message. 
while godliness will definitely affect our outward behavior and our inward behavior, our inward attitudes, godliness is rooted in the work of Christ, not in our efforts. While godliness will definitely affect our behavior, and we will see Paul ask Timothy to train himself for godliness, godliness is rooted in Christ, in his work. Dear Christian, our growth in godliness is rooted not in our efforts, but in the gospel of Jesus. Our behavior in God's household is not rooted in ourselves. It's not rooted in the rules themselves, but in the mystery of godliness, in Christ's work and in Christ's identity. There are many Christians who think that the gospel is only for conversion. And after, the, after conversion, it is up to our effort to grow in godliness. But such a view is incredibly dangerous. One local pastor gave me a book this week, this weekend, and he gave a wonderful illustration about how people misconstrue the gospel in this way. He gave the illustration of a space shuttle. People who think that the gospel is only for conversion think of the gospel as being the, the fuel tank that helps the shuttle propel up, get up in space. And once the shuttle is up in space, we no longer need that tank. We discard it. That's how some people think about the gospel. It's only good for conversion. But the gospel is more like the engine of the shuttle. It's what gets the, sh the, the, engine, the, the shuttle going, and it's also what keeps the shuttle going once it's up in space. Friends, the gospel is not only for conversion. It is not only the message of how to be saved. It is the message of how to stay, stay, stay saved and how to grow in sanctification and how to grow in maturity in Christ's likeness. That's why Paul preaches this gospel to people who knew the gospel, to Timothy. Now, do you think Timothy knew the gospel? He knew it. Why would Paul write in this letter, this personal letter to Timothy, the gospel again? Why would he include it? Because the gospel is not only what makes us Christians, it's what keeps us and fuels us to remain in our Christian walk. Friend, if you have been a Christian for a long time, let me give you some challenges. Do you think much about the gospel? For yourself? I'm not saying if you think about the gospel in order to tell it to others. Do you think about the gospel for yourself? Could you say the gospel in 60 seconds or less? If you know me by now, I like to give this test if I meet you pretty often. Give me the gospel in 60 seconds. Could you say it? What would you include? Friends, the longer Christians live, the less they think about the gospel. If you are such a Christian this morning, I want to give you three challenges. Go home and write out the gospel in a hundred words or less. These days, if you write it on the computer, you can get a word count. Write out the gospel in a hundred words or less. Write it out. What would you include? What would you say? What are the truths that would have to be said in order to make sure that the gospel is complete? Well, then share it with your wife. Now, share it not for the purpose of evangelizing. Share it so that you check and see if, if you got most of, the, most of the things that should be there. And then, once you have done these two steps, so you write it out, you share it with someone, 
with your wife or your friend, then pray the gospel. I want you this week to pray the gospel. Praise God in your prayers for the things and for the truths that are part of the gospel story. And I want you to be thinking about the gospel regularly. We want to be people who think about the gospel, who write the gospel, who share the gospel, who pray the gospel, who sing the gospel. The songs that we put up here, we are careful to make sure we we put songs that include the story of the gospel regularly and often. Friends, if you have a hard time thinking about the gospel and remember what what you should include in the message of the gospel, a wonderful book I would like to, to suggest to you, to recommend to you, is a little book entitled, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert. We actually have a few copies in the slat wall in the, in the, in the atrium. Um, encourage you to learn, read, meditate on the gospel. Friends, if you're not a disciple of Jesus this morning, the news we bring to you is that God created us perfect. Perfect in His image, without a flaw, because God Himself is perfect. But we rebelled against Him. We corrupted His image in us. And because of that, we triggered God's wrath against us. We triggered God's judgment against us. And the sentence of His judgment is eternal death. But despite our obedience, despite our disobedience, God loved us. And He sent His only Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life here on earth. To live out the rules of God perfectly without disobeying any one of them. And yet he was killed and died on a cross in order to take upon himself the wrath of God that we deserved. And in that cross, in that sacrificial death, Jesus not only take upon, took upon himself our wrath or God's wrath against us, but Jesus gave us his perfection so that, so that from that moment God can consider us righteous and perfect in his sight, not because of what we have done, but because of our faith in what Jesus has done. But the Bible tells us that Jesus will come again. He's currently ascended at the right hand of the Father, from which he is calling all people to follow him. But he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to take to him those who have responded to the call. If, my friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, the news of the gospel is that Jesus died for you so that you can have his life. And if you would believe this message and return from your sin and forsake your sin and give up your life and believe in Jesus, you too can receive God's new life. Friend, I pray. I pray that you would turn to God. And if you'd like to know more about this salvation, about this gospel, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Friends, the gospel is not only the message that saves us, it's a message that sustains us in our pursuit of godliness, in our pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the work of, and the person of Christ. When we hear the gospel, we may have a small view of the cross. But the more we grow in our view of God's holiness, and the in more we grow in our view of our sinfulness, the more we will grow in our view and appreciation of the cross. And the more we will grow in our response to Christ through repentance and faith. Today we have been reminded of the purpose of 1 Timothy. To instruct us how to live in the household of God. Under under God's roof, under his rules. Even though 1 Timothy has many instructions about pastoral leadership and about how to live together in God's household, 
today we'll remind you that God's rules are based on the truth of what the church is and on the truth of the mystery of godliness. It's about the person and work of Christ. Friends, none of these rules, none of the rules that God gives us can be followed apart from knowing the gospel and apart from keeping the gospel at the center. Actually, God's rules in God's house only make sense if we try to keep the gospel at the center. To try to live by God's rules without the gospel is legalism. And to try to live the gospel without submitting to God's rules is a denial of the gospel. Remember the book written by Nate Burkus? He claimed that your home should be a reflection of who you are. Well, that is what God desires from his own household. God's rules are there in order to teach us how to reflect his nature and character so that the church could be a visible display of the gospel to all people. May that be true of Parkhills Baptist Church as we embark on this study. Let us pray.